0: Welcome to the OVC Extra Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Schwartz, Assistant Commissioner for Strategic Communications at the Ohio Valley Conference. If you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can find us wherever you download your podcast with complete information at ovcsports.com podcast. We continue our OVC 75th year podcast series with former OVC Commissioner Dan Beebe. Dan was just the fifth full-time commissioner in OVC history and followed Jim Delaney, who was featured on this podcast series earlier. Dan was commissioner from 1989 through 2003 before moving on to the Big 12, where he started as the senior associate before eventually becoming the commissioner. During his time at the OVC, he helped negotiate a multi-year television contract, took the OVC basketball tournament to a neutral site, and helped the OVC take a leadership role in ethics and sportsmanship. Our conversation was so good that we are breaking his interview into two parts. So now, part one of my conversation with Dan Beebe. Well, Dan, thanks for taking time to join us on the OVC podcast as we celebrate the 75 years of uh, the OVC.
1: You bet. It's my pleasure and honor to to do this.
0: Well, I want to start with your background and just, you know, how you got into college athletics. And I know you played uh, football in college. So what kind of led you from student athlete to, you know, eventually law degree, NCAA, OVC?
1: Uh, It it was all, it wasn't a part of a plan. It was all kind of uh, just fortunate luck that came up um and uh, i went i was going to coach and teach coming out of college didn't have a great experience or or view of my coaches at that time and wanted to look around at other things so i um uh, as most of us guys can be influenced by women we're with i was with a a great woman whose family were all attorneys it seemed like uncle brother uh, father all that and i talked to them about uh, law school and just on a whim decided to walk in and take the LSAT and did well enough to get in um, and uh, went to Hastings. And then again, here I was headed on a path of practicing law clerked one summer. Wasn't that enamored with the thought of practicing law at that time? And I was going by the placement office uh, at Hastings law school and um, And I signed up to interview with the NCAA, not knowing what the job really entailed, I don't think. Um, I thought maybe it was in-house legal counsel. They didn't have that at the time. And what happened was a a fellow whom I became good friends with, Ron Stratton, um, was uh, the first, I believe he was the first black head football coach at a Division I institution at Portland State at a non- historically black institution, a predominantly white institution at Portland State, left there, became an assistant director with the NCAA Enforcement Department, and was on a mission to hire minorities and females to diversify the staff. Women's athletics had just come in to the NCAA, and um, he brought back, I think they had staff expansion. We only had like 10 enforcement representatives or investigators at the time. And he brought back a fellow that they ended up hiring, uh, uh, an African American fellow from Portland and a a swimmer. Uh, She was the captain of the USA swim team, I think, in 1976, and me. So your your audience can't see it, but I'm not a minority. But uh, uh, the the head of enforcement at that time asked Ron Stratton, he says, Okay, I understand Doug Johnson, black man, I understand Marsha Morey. You know white woman what about this bb guy how the heck are you thinking he's going to diversify the staff being a, um, a, a caucasian <laughs> male and ron said well uh he seems to have the ability to um you know talk to and convince people from all strata of life to uh, engage with them which is what we needed to do in the enforcement department and i was fortunate enough to be hired uh, they didn't pay much money back then i could have made quite a bit more in the in, uh, practice of law, um, but, uh, but it was just a fascinating job. You got to travel around the country, interviewing people to try to uh, figure out whether there were NCAA rule violations going on. And, um, and, you know, I had somehow, either they were trying to run me out of the business or I had a propensity to do the work well. I got some of the biggest cases in the 1980s with SMU being the most notorious Uh, but Oklahoma football Ole Miss football Kansas basketball started a UNLV case before I left for the OVC Maryland basketball and a number of others that I don't remember now (laughs) as well so so it was a fascinating career in that respect and then at 32 years old when Jim Delaney left to go to the Big Ten I uh, had a there there was one year time when I went to Wichita State Um, and at that time I had met um, two other assistant athletics directors, one was, um, Kevin Weiberg and the other was, uh, Tim Weiser. We became fast friends, but I, they dropped football. I, I thought I wanted to be an AD and figured out that I didn't really have that desire after that. So I went back to the NCAA and then when Delaney left from, uh, the OVC to go to the big 10, uh, Weiser moved on and became a uh, Athletics director at Austin P, and he somehow convinced his president to bring me in for an interview. And I interviewed with the seven presidents in Lexington, Kentucky, in 1989, and was hired uh, pretty quickly after that.
0: And you know your background—that's sort of the background Jim Delaney had too, coming from the N.C.A.A. Did you, did you already know Jim uh, at that time? Uh, what was your relationship with him, if any?
1: No, I knew of him, but we'd never met. Um, we met that day when I he picked me up I think at the airport in Lexington and took me to the to the president's meeting and sat in on it. Anyhow, uh, no Jim and I did not know each other. Um, I knew of him because he was an enforcement staff guy. We hadn't met before, and um, and I think you know I, I, thanks to him and the good job he did there for ten years, it greased the skids for someone with that similar background um, to to be able to get the job. Um, the presidents at that time, I mean, we were in, you know, big cost containment mode. Um, some of the presidents were depression era, you know, folks who weren't that excited about spending hardly any of the general budget's money on athletics and wanted someone who was gonna make sure that it was operated properly, that coaches did the right things and and uh, ADs behaved in a certain manner. I remember just to demonstrate how, <laughs> How conservative these presidents were. Um, with the budget, with everything, right? I, I think Delaney had a staff of two other people that I inherited. So we had three total people working there. Um, my first year, the athletics directors were complaining about the fact that even the conference champions in any tournaments did not have any type of the, the, the student athletes didn't have any any memorabilia. And so I put in the budget to spend $3,000, I think it was, for t-shirts. And they I was quickly told that um, I work for the presidents, not the athletics directors, and that we, they're already spending too much money on athletics. And if individual institutions wanted to do something to commemorate their athletes having won a championship, they could decide to do that on their own. <laughs>
0: I'll bring that up at a staff meeting here in uh, the office. Now that, that seems, uh, that seems crazy. So like, what were your goals then? Like you, you get here and you said, Jim left it in a good position, but what did you want to accomplish right away then working with, you know, presidents that were very frugal too?
1: Well, the first thing is, um, and I didn't know about this at the time I interviewed is I think one of the first articles I got when I became commissioner in the summer of 1989 was that we had seven institutions. And there was an article in my desk from the Nashville paper that said that two of them were looking to perhaps change conferences. So I just you know, I had two small kids, four and two, and one on its way and thought, my goodness, I moved my family. I left a good job as a director of enforcement to come here. And then the conference disappears. So my first task and goal was to solidify the conference by trying to keep it was Eastern Kentucky and middle Tennessee state, um, keep them in the fold and also to, um, to then, uh, add memberships, Mm -hmm. add add members. So we were on a mission that year, right off the bat to look at other institutions. And of course, that's when we brought in Southeast Missouri, uh, and, uh, Tennessee, Martin and Eastern Illinois to, to solidify our membership. So, um, so that, that's something. And then, and then also right away Delaney and Delaney had good leverage from being, or not at least people knew of him with television folks from being on the men's basketball committee, he was able to get a pretty good deal on ESPN, which at that time, any kind of appearances were like gold. It wasn't, we didn't have the ubiquitous, uh, streaming and television channels like we have now. Um, and he had a Friday night package. That was, uh, you know, Friday late night whatever package, and that went away when he went away. So at the same time, I was scrambling for any type of television exposure, and we stitched together a syndicated package with, you know, television stations in that um, in that market in in those markets to have some sort of OVC games be televised and distributed and and, uh, and and. you know, we were successful in getting some limited exposure in that regard.
0: You mentioned, uh, we're going to talk about your post-OVC uh, near the end, but you mentioned, you know, solidifying membership. That's something you dealt with in the Big 12 too. That's something the OVC at every conference is faced. Now, what goes through your head then like generally, like when teams want to leave or you have to go find new teams, what's, you know, like what's the strategy behind that and, and, and trying to solidify who's the perfect fit?
1: what was the last date who,
0: who would be the perfect fit like how do you know who's a good fit for a conference?
1: yeah I, you know it it evolved I mean a lot of stuff evolves from when you're working in a level like the Ohio Valley conference with limited resources and when you're when you're working at the big 12 where you can tell your law firm and others hey go look at this stuff and research it and throw money and personnel at your issues. We didn't have that in the Ohio valley so you know we gathered as much information as we could we tried to see if I remember right you know what what's the enrollment of the institutions what are their missions um, at that time we were st- you know later we added Sanford and Jacksonville State under my tenure but um, and and so and Sanford was you know was our was our first private institution that joined um, and so we um, uh, and then we traveled I took a I took three presidents with me in the car and travel to southeast missouri and travel to tennessee martin and travel to eastern illinois and and so that they could talk to their colleagues on those campuses um, see the see the you know we went, saw the facilities and all that and um, made the judgment that you know those institutions were compatible with the institutions that we had and their mission and scope and and their and their focus on athletics
0: one of the things um, you all got were hosting NCAA tournament, men's basketball tournaments in Nashville. Um, what what was the reasoning or why did you want to go and get these NCAA events to come and have the OVC be the host?
1: Um, I can tell you a funny story about that, which was yeah. my first tournament. There are all sorts of things in my first year that I got baptized by fire with. Um, we were at Murray State and, you know, it was in that, that Cracker Box Racer Arena, there was about 5,500. Exciting basketball, you know, because these schools, as you know, or those schools at the time were so geographically compact, and a lot of alums crossed paths, and you know, there was a lot of um of some some you know good rivalry, somewhat you know, animosity sort <laughs> mm-hmm. to, to to various teams. Well, we were at that tournament at um at uh, Murray State um and uh murray was playing eastern kentucky in the championship game um and i uh foolishly as commissioner shouldn't sit at this at the scorer's table but i was sitting at the scorer's table with some of the other athletics directors there and murray at the time i don't know if it still is was a dry county and i smelled alcohol and here i am 32 year old young commissioner you know uh concerned about how the tournament was gonna to come off. It was, a, it was a valued, treasured ESPN appearance, hot match matchup between two big rivals. And I looked behind me, the seat the seating, the, the fans were like right on you, right behind you in, in, in press row or, or the scorer's table. And then I, I elbowed my buddy, um, it was Tim Weiser, who'd stayed around just to support the tournament. Said, do you smell alcohol? I said, yeah, I do. Well, I look over and I won't name who they are, but there were two at extractors, older guys sitting next to me pouring bourbon out of a paper sack into Pepsi cups. <laughs> and I thought, "Great, here we go. Some player's going to hit this rickety scorer's table. We're going to all fall over backwards and a bottle of bourbon is going to roll out to middle court in the middle of ESPN telecast." <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't the true reason why we moved it to a neutral site. I mean, you got the common complaints by those that aren't hosting about what a huge advantage it is, and that's always in all we, in all tournaments. On the other side, in the smaller, you know, mid-major levels, you're going to get the best turnout usually at if the ch- if the team that hosts makes it to the championship game. So. You know, you you bat those competing interests around, and we just came down on, and we and we wanted to see if we could generate support in whatever community we had the event. I think it's fair to say that um, we did get a little more support because there are a number of LV, Ohio Valley Conference fans living in, in um, Nashville, so we probably got some more support that we wouldn't have otherwise had. We were counting on more just general basketball fans, and I don't think at that time that we did generate that kind of support as much. And we tried it, as you know, we tried it in Lexington. We tried it in Louisville. We tried it in, uh, and then we did it in Nashville and it seemed like Nashville was the most central location that the people could get to and, and, and come support the tournament at.
0: For people listening, they probably think now it's Bridgestone arena. It was the Nashville arena, I guess, when it opened, uh, that's the OVC, first OVC tournament there was the first or second event, I believe. Um, as before, for the Predators, before they had a tenant. So did you foresee, you know, having it in downtown Nashville, this new arena that was, it was eventually going to be a big deal.
1: Um, well, I was hopeful for that. And we were just fortunate that, you know, the Nashville decided to build a new arena. Um, and, uh, it's state of the art at the time. It was, you know, we also were fortunate in that we hosted, I don't know if we hosted one or two NCAA, uh, men's basketball, uh, you know, first second rounds there, um, that, was, that was great exposure, great windfall. Um, but we were very, you know, very uh, lucky at that time to have the arena come in. I think it was in, you know, the mid-90s, 96, 97 or something like that, that we first had our tournament there. And uh, it, was, it was, you know, a tremendous facility for our level of, of, of uh, conference.
0: And when you all hosted those ncaa events stuff that you in your tenure after your tenure we've still done that here uh that also gets a little extra exposure for the conference when you're hosting you know men's basketball ncaa men's basketball tournaments
1: no definitely uh, no question we um uh like i said that was that was a big win for us to get granted the ability and you know, were sitting there in the market with Uh, Vanderbilt. And so we traded back and forth with Vanderbilt. I had a good relationship with the athletics directors at Vanderbilt when they were there. Um, and we traded hosting opportunities in Nashville with Vanderbilt. So, um, so it was, it was tremendous. I was, I was concerned, but I had Ron English and who's still doing this stuff for the NCAA. And he was just tremendous in his organization and, uh, carrying out event management activities. Um, I was more, you know, as a big 6'2", 250 hundred and fifty-pound former football rugby player. Um, I remember one time carrying in boxes to the, you know, which I didn't have to do when I was in the Big Twelve, but in the Ohio Valley it was all hands on deck, and I think that was the that was the extent of my event management um, capability is to carry boxes of whatever, uh, basketballs or something into the arena.
0: And you mentioned Ron. He for those listening, he's going to be on a podcast later this year uh works for the NCA boy now obviously uh he told me some good stories about you but you all lived together for a little bit of time uh and he said that was a unique relationship uh for a while
1: yeah, yeah. uh sadly i was going through a se- separation in my first marriage and and uh ron i just he was i'd hired him and his family had remained in illinois maybe for a year and so we got an apartment together and <laughs> roomed in. Very meager circumstances, but it worked out because for weekends he would travel back up to Illinois quite a bit, and um, I was going to meetings and other things as well. So, um, so yeah, it was <laughs> not the usual, uh, you know, relationship employee to employer.
0: And you you talked about when you started, the staff was very small. So people like Ron came on. Also, want to mention Diane Vaughn, who still is our chief uh, financial officer. You hired her, so you were able to expand the staff during your time
1: yeah uh you know and i think that changes with the board i i told you about the story of not even allowing three thousand dollars for t-shirts and what what you have to notice as a commissioner is how your board composition changes presidents and what their interests are what they're willing to do so um so and probably state state money got a little better uh and, and institutions were funded a little better but i also started to get board members as the older members retired or left or whatever who were more interested in promoting athletics and were more uh and were able, you know, accepted some of my proposals to um increase the exposure we could have and bring in people to do you know the work that we needed to get done
0: sportsmanship was a big uh, part of what you wanted to do at the ovc the the sportsmanship statement that you put uh, uh helped develop- Why was, what needed to be done with sportsmanship during your tenure?
1: Well, another, another thing that happened in my first year, like I said, I got baptized by fire, um, we stitched together that the the few games that we could get on some type of television and we're at, uh, the convention is in Nashville when I think might've been our first or second game on in January. Um, and I, and I, and the athletics director, it was a a game between two heated rivals, Middle Tennessee state, Tennessee tech, and both were very good teams. Middle Tennessee state had come off of winning a first round upset game against maybe Florida state 1989. And so they were, they were, they were, uh, developing a good basketball program. Tennessee tech had a really good program. They're playing together in Murfreesboro and I got together with the, the athletics directors, John Stanford at Middle Tennessee State, Dave Larimore at, at uh, Tennessee Tech at a bar that would show our game because you had to get, get it on a certain satellite. So we're in San Diego at the NCAA convention. The game starts, and it's going pretty hot and heavy. And all of a sudden, a fight breaks out. And i got to tell you uh, that it, it, it was the worst fight I've seen in a basketball game, college or pro, in my whole life. And I've watched a lot of basketball um and it went on and on and on with players exiting the benches hitting each other kicking each other and so <laughs> i said to each of that leg directors you're friends of mine i said well i hope you got a deep bench because it looks like there's going to be some sus- sus- uh, suspensions from this and so we go back i go back home i get the you know the old tape, and i just go through and scroll and i'd see each. If I follow each player, I focus in on one player, follow them all the way around, and for each punch they threw or kicked or whatever, it was a game suspension. And in my mind, unless it was going to be so so egregious. So I ended up with 15 players being suspended from one to five games, I think, because somebody threw five punches or something. And, um, and eight were from Murfreesboro, or from Middle Tennessee State, and seven or six or so, uh, were, were from uh, Texas, uh, Tennessee Tech. And sometimes I might say Texas Tech, I mean, having <laughs> but from Tennessee Tech. So I got hammered by the middle Tennessee State media and fans and everybody else because it was unequal. They, somehow they thought instead of what each player did, they thought I should level the suspensions. And the coach at the time, he's passed away now, uh, Bruce Stewart, but he, came out on Martin Luther King day and said, we're going to, uh, we're not gonna play, we don't have enough players. I gave him the opportunity to rotate the suspension so they'd have enough roster to play, but he chose not to do that and forfeited the game against Tennessee State, which he didn't have to do. So then I had to come back and I find, uh, or I, I made Middle Tennessee State pay tennessee state because was a home game for tennessee state the money that we suspected they would have made because it's a big rivalry game too um, and that further inflamed the middle tennessee state crowd so but also the other thing we we looked at is and we had a, a great athletics director professional basketball player and uh steve hamilton of morehead state for whom that sportsmanship award is is named um and a humble guy that didn't didn't need to be humble because he's I think one of only two men have ever played NBA championship series and a World Series, um, so that's pretty significant. But he was involved, and we sat down and talked about what. One of the things you know at, at our level, you're not in it for the big money. You need to have, in uh, the high valley conference level, um, a reason for your sports to be viewed as. Well, you can really hear this now. Uh, a reason for uh, your sports programs to be viewed as a positive influence. So we were going to not put up with having unsporting behavior and came up with the sportsmanship statement that was really got some good publicity nationally. But I remember being at the NCAA coaches convention and uh, getting into a, a little bit of a heated discussion with uh, Mike Krzyzewski, um and some of the other coaches about the fact that I put in the sportsmanship statement that if players exited the benches during a uh, in, in, in if there's an altercation, the head coach would be suspended. And, you know, their view is how can we control that? And, you know, my view was you, you guys control everything down to what kind of lead your assistants use in their pencils. So you certainly can control, you know, whether your players get off the bench and get engaged in a fight.
0: And what was the, after you had got this going, what was the, you know, towards the end of your tenure, what was the reaction of, of you know, did it improve things overall with sportsmanship?
1: Yeah. I don't remember that we had another major altercation in my tenure, uh, as commissioner. Um, and I think, you know, people took it seriously. There's one thing coaches are, are definitely afraid of, and that's not being able to coach. That's and right. maybe it's because some suspected that it's because if their team played well and won. Some might think, well, it's not because of the coach, right? So, so that's that's something that um, throughout all my time, you know, coaches being affected by not being able to coach is a, a, a big deal. And in fact, when I rolled up to be on the enforcement working group because of my you know experience in enforcement matters um, in my Big Twelve years, I was the one that pounded on the table and insisted that we come up with the uh, proposal or that, that if assistant coaches or others committed rules violations, that the head coaches could be subject to suspension if they couldn't prove that they tried to create an atmosphere of compliance. Um, so I've always thought that the key is the head of the organization needs to be held accountable if, if their players or others that they have oversight of don't behave properly.
0: That was part one of my conversation with Dan Beebe. We'll release part two later this month. In researching the interview someone told me that dan got along with everybody and everybody liked dan and i could tell that right away when he asked me questions about myself before starting that he really takes a general interest in people it's easy to see why everybody likes him as we celebrate the 75th anniversary of the ovc we wanted to hear from a variety of former coaches players and administrators to get different perspectives on what has made the ovc great over the years remember you can find us on your favorite podcast platform and like and subscribe to help spread the word. You can also visit ovcsports.com podcast for more information. Until next time, take care.